Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in African Studies podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm honored today to be in dialogue with my esteemed guest, Dr. Anima Ajapong. Dr. Ajapong is Assistant Professor of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at the University of Cincinnati. Dr. Ajapong is the author of the new book, Afropolitan Project, Redefining Blackness, Sexualities, and Culture from Houston to Accra, published in Chapel Hill by University of North Carolina Press 2021. Thank you for being with us today, Anima. It's an an absolute honor. Yeah, thank you. I'm really excited to be here and talk about this book with you. Thank you. I couldn't be more lucky. Thank you. To begin, uh, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up and study? Were there any formative events in your life that inspired you to become an academic? Yeah, thanks for that question. So I grew up in Ghana. Um, I moved to the United States when I was 15 years old. And uh, I moved to Texas, a small town in Texas, where I was the only African in my high school. And I was the only, um, I was one of very few Black people, but I was also at a very small high school. It was a pretty discordant experience for me having grown up in Ghana, uh, where uh, not only in, 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 in the city of Accra, which is a large cosmopolitan city, and to move to a small town in Texas where, you know, people farmed and lived a very rural life. After I after I graduated from high school, I went to university at Princeton, which was felt like a relief um, leaving Texas because I finally met other Africans like myself and um, you know recognized the kind of the specificity of the experience of being in Texas versus um, being somewhere that was once again, more kind of cosmopolitan in its makeup. The, I, I think that I, I, I didn't have an aspiration to become an academic necessarily. I was interested in, I've always been interested in books. I, I love reading. And so I spent a lot of time reading. And when I, when I started graduate school, I, I actually wanted to do research on sports, which is um, a big part of the research that I do. But um, when it came time to do my dissertation, I was aware that something had shifted in how Africans were being um, represented in the popular culture in the United States. And I was interested in learning more about what that shift was and what it meant. And I was especially interested in learning about that shift from the perspective of other Africans. So not necessarily from kind of the the broader US culture, but from the perspective of Africans themselves. And that's part of what inspired me to do the research that became this book. What message do you hope to convey to readers from this book? Can you comment on what catalyzed you to invest so much time and sacrifice in researching, writing, and preparing this book? Yeah. The, the key message for the book is found in, in one of the epigraphs, which is a, uh, it's a symbol. It's an Adenkra symbol. Adenkra is a symbol of, uh, these are proverbs from the Akan people. And mm-hmm. the, the symbol that I chose in the book is um and I didn't cry that says, which translates to um, you're giving a push, literally translates to you're given a push when you climb a good tree. Mm-hmm. And what it means is that it's um, 
a way to encourage people who are doing good work. Um, th that's the primary message that I hope that folks who read this book will take away from. And by folks, I really mean people who are engaged in a kind of cultural politics of resistance. The Afropolitan as a term was really popularized by the author Tay Selassie in an essay that she wrote in 2006 titled Bye Bye Babar. In it, she describes these Africans who are really fabulous, uh, kind of jet-setting Africans. And there was a lot of pushback as the term gained popularity because it um, folks understood it to be incredibly elitist, exclusionary, and and that sort of stuff. And so, um, you know, there were essays challenging the Afropolitan as a representative of Africa in any real way. And while I think a lot of that is warranted, I also recognized as I was doing this research that folks who were identified as or who identified themselves as Afropolitan were also trying to challenge some of these negative um, ideas about the African continent. And there are certainly pitfalls with that. Um, and so what I really wanted the book to focus on was on those moments of of resistance, of kind of challenging ideas about what it means to be an African, whether it was around queerness, around blackness, around kind of certain um, stultifying cultural practices. I wanted to highlight those as well as kind of offering a broader analysis of what Afropolitans were engaged in more generally. So the message uh, for me is about that kind of encouragement um, to keep engaging in that culture of resistance. You mentioned the term Afropolitan. Why did you choose the title Afropolitan Projects? Can you describe the meaning of the title and why you chose the specific title Afropolitan Projects? Yeah, so there are kind of two responses to that question. One of them is a bit a bit more trivial. Um, at the time when I was really deeply in the research, in the first part of the research, when I was in Houston, an album by a Ghanaian, um, he, might, he might be Ghanaian-American, but this artist, um, Blitz the Ambassador, Blitz Baule, Oh, that I don't. I think I said his last name wrong. But um, Blitz, the ambassador, um, had this album called Afropolitan Dreams, mm -hmm. and the music in Afropolitan Dreams was outlining uh, his journey as an immigrant to the U.S. in conversation with kind of navigating American blackness, navigating his relate his transnational relationship to the continent, etc. And I was really interested in how that that music was mapping onto a lot of the things that I was identifying in the research. And so I started really kind of thinking about Afropolitan seriously um, through my engagement with Blitz's work. Um, but I was also at the time reading Vilna Bashi Traitler's book, um, The Ethnic Project in which he's thinking about how within the United States, um, while there's a kind of um, structure of race, there are also different ways in which uh, different ethnic groups, as she was thinking about it, who are racialized ethnic groups are positioning themselves within this hierarchy of race. And so she talks about the cultural work that um, Americans are engaged in to not be at the bottom of the racial hierarchy. And I, I thought that was very compelling. And so thinking about the cultural work that the folks in my study were doing, I began to really understand them as a kind of project, not unlike the project that um, uh, uh, the ethnic project Phil Nabashi Traitler's book was talking about. And at the same time, I recognized kind of the transnational scope of the work and the way that what my interlocutors were doing were very much about articulating themselves as Africans of the world. And so Afropolitan Projects, I hope, speaks to that cultural work and the um, intentionality behind this kind of political engagement with a broad racial hierarchy, a global racial hierarchy. 
Which academic works on Black diaspora studies most influenced your study research and intellectual development? Uh, certainly, uh, Vilna Bashi Traitler's work. It's not um, it's not specifically about Black diaspora, but I think that just the way that she is thinking about racial hierarchies is really was really influential for me. Another text is uh, Michelle M. Wright's Physics of Blackness. What I really like about that book is the challenge that she poses to um, what she describes as a middle passage epistemology that really kind of articulates Blackness as emerging through slavery and that becomes like a full stop period sort of thing. Um, Physics of Blackness invites us to really think very expansively about the way that we think Blackness, to think about um, colonialism and how that shaped Black identities worldwide, to think about gender expansively and to think about sexuality, to move beyond this heteromasculinist narrative. So that's a really kind of foundational text for me. And I also really like um, Jamima Peer's book, um, and right now the title is blanking, it'll come to me in a minute, uh, Predicament of Blackness, Jamima Pierre's book, Predicament of Blackness, in which she's really kind of thinking about how racialization manifests in Ghana and thinking about where Africa is located broadly in these kind of conversations using the case of Ghana. And so um, I will say that those three books were and are very foundational to the way that my own book um, kind of engages with some of these questions as well. Can you say more about the epistemological lenses that inform your research? You alluded to middle passage epistemology. Could you share more about the significance of that concept? How does your book challenge the reader's assumptions about epistemology? Mm. Uh, so I'll begin with um, talking about the middle passage epistemology and, and then moving on to the other parts of the question. So the middle passage epistemology is um, the way that the transatlantic slave trade and, you know, that um, the, the journey between the Atlantic, the, the Atlantic coast of Africa and the Atlantic coast of North America, largely, um, how that passage is has been instantiated as like the moment in which black identities are formed. And so we might think about that in Paul Gilroy's, um, in Paul Gilroy's foundational texts. Um, and so what Michelle Wright um, deals with is a post, she, she kind of encourages a post-war epistemology to also think about how these wars shaped uh, folks movement and all of that. Um, but for me as a scholar, I think there are a couple of lenses that through which I engage my work. And one of the primary ones is a queer of color critique. Um, and for as the way that I came into doing queer of color critique was through Rod Ferguson's work, Admirations in Black, in which Ferguson really kind of emphasizes how culture is a site of uh, not just these different political struggles, but also really a site where there are opportunities to transform these different political struggles. And that really informed how I did this research and how I engaged with the different uh, topics that I came across, the different materials that informed my analysis as well. But in, in addition to that, I methodologically, I'm, I'm trained as a sociologist um, and yet I was really encouraged to think expansively about my methods. Um, I, I engage in what I call a promiscuous methodology. And, and the reason for that is that I found that using the primary tools of the trade in the way that they're meant to be used could not sufficiently answer questions about Africans in the way that I was interested in answering those questions. 
And so my work is in part autoethnography, it's in part ethnographic, it's um, maybe there are even elements of performance in there. Um, there's content analysis. The, the, all of that is to say that me the methodological um, approach is expansive and the data sources are expansive. And that's because I really wanted to um, go as in-depth and as broad as possible in engaging this analysis uh, in order to highlight not only the nuances, but also the contradictions that really show up in, in a work that is about a progressive politics that can also be conservative in certain ways, for example. Can you describe your cover page? Why did you select the specific art on the cover of your book? Can you tell our listeners what it looks like since they don't have it in front of them? Mm -hmm. It's actually beautiful, if you don't want me to say. Yeah, no, thank it's you. It's really stunning. I was so excited. So the book includes a lot of different um, art throughout, well, not throughout, but there are a few art pieces in the book. But the cover is um, a, a work by Sharon Adebisi, um, who is a Black British, Ghanaian British uh, young woman. And I came across the work on Twitter. I come across a lot of things on Twitter. And I was really struck by it. And I thought that it um, spoke a lot to what I was doing. So on the cover is an image of, um, in, the, in the foreground of the image is a, a Black woman with what looks like braids. And she's wearing um, a wax print dress. And there are cars in the background. There's like a lot of cars in the background, actually. There's a huge billboard that says techno and it's advertising what could potentially be mobile phones and, and and that's on the left side and on the right side there's a giant flag of Ghana with the years 2000 something and the title of the image is the acclimatized foreigner and the street is well I, I think that the street is Oxford Street Accra Oxford Street is a pretty famous street in Accra. It's um, it's in Usu, which is one of the more famous neighborhoods in the in the city as well, and it's um, a place. It's a very touristy part of the city, and I liked the, the vibrancy of the image, and I also liked the the kind of centrality of Ghana, like there was a specificity of place in the image that I really wanted to call attention to. Because the book is also very place-based, even as it's transnational, being from moving between Houston and Accra. And so I thought that this cover, well, I hope that the cover would invite people in, would be an attractive thing. Um, because in part, Afropolitan projects are also very aesthetic. And so I wanted to kind of represent that aesthetic quality on the cover as well. But I also really um, like how it's representing this cosmopolitan city uh, that in a way could be any African city, um, could even be some cities not on the African continent, but with the Ghana flag on it, you know very clearly that this is a Ghanaian city. In what ways does your book contribute to the study of post-colonialism? I think one of the primary contributions that the book makes to post-colonial thought is in how I think about Black identities. So um, something that I was really interested in when I started this study was how do Africans understand themselves as Black? And that question came comes up for me because there's this kind of narrative that it is only through migration that Africans come to understand themselves as Black. And at the same time, um, you know, Ghana's flag has a Black star on it. And there's, there's a Pan-Africanism that really kind of emphasizes Blackness. And this argument that Africans um, come to understand themselves as Black only through migration isn't just something that happens in scholarly texts. Like, ordinary people say this as well. And through my interviews and through my observations, uh, what I realized is that 
part of what folks are kind of balking at is um, an imposition. And I think this kind of goes back to that middle passage epistemology as well. An imposition of Blackness that is alien to uh, the particular experiences of the people that I was talking to. So while they understood themselves as Black, their Blackness is forged in, um, in, in the fires of colonialism. And so that provides a different historical framework, also in the fires of post-colonialism. And so um, what I think a key contribution is really taking seriously how that colonial history shapes uh, this understanding of Blackness and what it might mean to engage that and also engage the Middle Passage epistemology so that we're really able to think expansively about um, opportunities for collaboration and coalition and think very broadly about diaspora too. Um, and so in that regard as well, I do think about Africa as a site of Black diaspora. So rather than thinking about the continent as um, the place from which diaspora emerges, I, I really think seriously about how within the continent is also a site of Black diaspora. Can you comment on the epigraphs that open your book? Why did you choose them? What do they mean? Can you tell us anything about the authors whose aphorisms you quote? So I, I already talked about the um, the symbol, the Adinkra mm -hmm. symbol, and why I chose that. Uh, the other three, so I have four epigraphs. Um, there's one by the Ghanaian author Amata Edu. And Amata Edu is um, she she's she's a she's quite a prolific author um, and she's been writing forever. And I chose a quote from her book Our Sister Killjoy or Confessions of a Black Eyed Squint. Um, and I'll just read it quickly because I think it's it's worth reading. I won't read all of them, but uh, this one says, so you see, my precious something, all that I was saying about language is that I wish you and I could share our hopes, our fears, and our fantasies without feeling inhibited because we suspect someone is listening. As it is, we cannot write to one another or speak across the talking cables or converse as we travel on a bus or train or anywhere, but we are sure they are listening, listening, listening. Um, the book is a, is a prose poem. And it's about this woman who um, has left Ghana. Uh, she's, she's going to Germany as part of some exchange program. Um, and this quote, I really liked it because it also in a way speaks to the tension for me as a scholar writing this work, um, being able to translate it across different audiences, recognizing that there is a, um, there is a way in which I have to speak a language that might not necessarily um, reflect the politics of the people that I am I am writing about, my interlocutors who have shared their lives and works with me. And so nevertheless, trying to find that language um, because we have to be able to communicate with one another somehow. So I that's the first epigraph of the book because I think it really speaks to um, what it means for me as an African scholar. And I don't think this is a unique experience, but to engage simultaneously these Western epistemologies while also trying to articulate ourselves in the ways that um, make the most sense for us um, that are kind of culturally rooted in particular sorts of ways. The other uh, epigraph is a quote from Stuart Hall's Cultural Identity and Diaspora. And in it, um, he's talking about how culture transforms. But the part that I really liked, um, I really liked about this quote is uh, towards the end where he says the original Africa is no longer there. It too has been transformed. And I, again, I wanted to kind of highlight that because part of what I'm doing throughout the book is looking at those transformations and the ways that um, sometimes Afropolitan projects try to speak to an Africa that no longer exists. And so to really kind of take seriously the, um, the weight of cultural change 
even as like we're engaging in a politics of positioning and a politics of resisting um, certain kinds of positioning while also positioning ourselves in particular ways. And then um, the next epigraph is a quote um, from Uncut Funk, a contemplative dialogue between Bell Hooks and Stuart Hall. And uh, this Bell Hooks said this, um, that our imagination is where our strength to resist lies. And I, I found that inspirational um, because one of the things that's beautiful about the cultural politics that I'm writing about is how broadly imaginative it is and how folks are engaging in um, this radical imaginative work to transform what it means to be an African. Uh, and the resistance portion is really important as well because to imagine beyond the boundaries of what we've been told we can imagine means that we can resist these kind of cultures of domination, which as I mentioned is something that I really hope that uh, readers of this book will take away. What if anything is unique to Ghana and Ghanaians about your study? Can your book's insights be applied to Liberia and the Liberian diaspora, to Togo and the Togolese diaspora, and to other West African homeland diaspora relationships? Why or why not? Um, so I chose to study Ghanaians for this project as a political thing. So I began this research in Houston. Houston is um, called amongst some people, Little Lagos, to call attention to not only the number of Nigerians that live there, but also kind of some of the political and economic relationships between the two cities, Lagos and Houston. And so on the one hand, perhaps if I were kind of engaging in a sociological study that shows an, a, um, a kind of maybe even a representative um, sample of some sort, then it would have made more sense for me to do this study with Nigerians in Houston. Uh, but I, I didn't do that. I didn't do that because I, actually I started to, I, I, I did some preliminary work with Nigerians and I realized, you know, when folks are together, they're speaking their own languages. They're speaking Igbo, they're speaking Yoruba, they're speaking Efik. I do not understand these languages. Um, and so I thought it would be intellectually irresponsible because, you know, of course they would speak in English to accommodate me and all of that sort of stuff. But it means that I'm getting, you know, 50% of what's happening. They're making references to things back home that I'm not going to understand. Um, when I was amongst Ghanaians, I was like, oh, I get the cultural context here. I understand what's not being said as well as what's being said. Those silences make more sense. Um, the things that are being emphasized make more sense. The historical references make more sense. And so in that regard, I positioned myself in such a way as to really go at both deep and wide with this study. And that and that's why I chose the case that I chose. Um, in terms of what's unique, I think those cultural specificities are amongst them. Now, of course, I, I know Kenyans who have read it and who find resonance. I know Liberians and Ethiopians who have read it and who find resonance. I know Nigerians who have read it and who find resonance. And so I think that on one level, because the Afropolitan is not a uniquely Ghanaian um, identity or political project, there's resonance um, that can be found across diverse African um, communities. And, and I think that's important. And at the same time, I also think that there are probably some nuances. Uh, for example, Ghana really positions itself as the gateway of Africa. And so maybe that shapes particular kind of nationalist projects that are embedded within this transnational project. Um, so I think it would be interesting to me actually to see uh, other kinds of studies that build on this one because I think part of the strength of this book is really how it focuses in on the particular um, on the particular case while also saying something broadly about African genders, race, sexuality, and culture 
but I also think there might be opportunities to expand on some of these insights in different contexts as well. What does the term obroni mean? Can you explain its meaning and significance? Mm -hmm. So obroni um, means a couple of things. It either means foreigner, just um, plainly, or it means white person. Um, in in a and it's an Akan word, so it's it's an Akan word for either a foreigner or a white person. In the book, actually building on Jamima Pierre's work, Jamima Pierre uh, in Predicaments of Blackness really kind of thinks about what the work that Obroni is doing, um, because it's a word that is perhaps on its face neutral. It's just a description for a foreigner or a white person. But the way that it's used in the culture is as something incredibly positive, usually. So um, if so if a white person is called an obroni, that's just you know a description. But if a black person is called an obroni, um, it's doing a couple of things. It's first positioning them as um, usually somehow better than the other people. So if if I said in a con Medofobroni, which is my my beloved Obroni, um, I'm really kind of saying I love you as much as I love a white person, right? Um, and that that is a really high form of loving someone. But the other thing that Obroni does, especially when um, directed at a black person, is to position you as outside, as an outsider, as as someone who doesn't necessarily belong. So that if I, for example, go to Ghana and um, someone says, oh, you're acting like an Obroni, maybe what they're saying is that I'm behaving in such a way that shows me as not fully belonging within that landscape. And that can be good or that can be bad, right? And so, you know, if I really want to belong and I'm called an Obroni, then I might feel bad because it means that I'm I'm excluded. But it is largely a positive thing. And what it calls attention to is how we are racialized um, as Ghanaians. So to go back to the idea that, um, you know, let's say Africans, but let's be more specific and say Ghanaians know nothing about race until they migrate and then they become, they, you know, become racialized. Well, what Obroni calls our attention to is the, the falsity of that claim. How Obroni is used tells us that um, there is a racial logic that's at play, and that racial logic is um, is kind of articulated through a white supremacist lens, so that whiteness becomes um, equated with beauty and intelligence and love and all of these sorts of things. Can you kindly tell us about Ankamafio Street? What is its significance? Yeah, so Ancomofio Street is only significant insofar as it's the street that I was living on while I was doing my research in, in 2018 while I was in Ghana. But at the same time, I do spend a fair bit of time in the book describing that street. And it's because it really, I think, calls attention to the distance between the haves and the have-nots. So this is a street in La, which is a neighborhood on the coast, it's in Accra. And it is not a very long street at all. But what I described in the book is how this street is, um, is on one side of it, it's paved, the roads are paved, the wide gutters that can kind of clear rubbish out. Um, and and when it rains, the, the gutters will take the water away. There are these beautiful homes that are gated and walled and have these lovely flowers and that sort of thing. And literally across the street, um, while there are some kind of big houses that are going up, there's also shacks and little shops um, that... And, and there are no gutters. And the, the road is un, untarred. The road is unpaved. And in every, for the last decade or so, um, every June or thereabouts, there are floods in Ghana. There are floods in Accra. And there are also floods in other African 
uh, West African cities as well during this period. It's the rainy season. So there are floods in Abidjan, there are floods in, um, there might be floods in Lagos. Um, but, and, and they can be very devastating for those who live on certain streets more than others. Um, so while I was in, in Ghana doing this research in June of 2018, there was one of those floods and at least one person was killed during it. But I found myself caught out in the rain and trying to get back to my apartment. There were no cars that would take me. So I'm, I'm having to walk down on Kamafu Street to, to the apartment where I was staying. And a walk that would usually take about five, maybe eight minutes took much, much longer than that. And the majority of the time was spent in that untarred, unpaved portion of the road. I'm, I'm in about knee deep water walking across this, um, this street. And uh, folks will tell you, this is a very dangerous thing to do. When, when there's flood waters, you don't really know what's in the water. You don't know what might cut you or hurt you or anything like that. Um, but I, was, I, I needed to get home and there was no other way to get there. And so walking through this flood water, um, this danger, these dangerous waters, and then kind of taking one step crossing on the same street and all of a sudden the gutters are doing their job um, and I'm able to walk on Tard Road to get back safely to my apartment. And I spent so much time kind of writing about that in the book because I thought it really showed this kind of both the spatial proximity of um, those who live a fairly privileged life to those who are in these pretty dangerous conditions. But it also shows how um, within this context, folks might be experiencing the same things, like the floods are coming down. And yet it, it's a nuisance for some of us and, um, and quite dangerous for others. Now, so there's something about this narrative that might sound like, well, you know, yeah, of course, you know, in Africa, um, these things happen. But something that I think is really important to call attention to is that this isn't a uniquely African situation. In 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 cities in um, in the U.S., we're also kind of encountering these kind of block by block. It's a completely different city that you're in. There's immense poverty, and then there's like a fair amount of privilege. Um, you might think about Los Angeles as an example or even in Cincinnati where I live, um, in downtown over the Rhine area is one place where you really kind of see these kind of like sharp divides. And so it's, I, I think in addition to calling attention to the specificity of this thing, um, I think it also calls attention to how these kind of global inequalities manifest on the landscape in very real ways. And so um, on Kamafio streets and my particular experience on that street with the flood, I think calls our attention to these larger issues. Can you tell us about the rapper Aku? Why is she significant? Yeah, um, Aku is um, Aku is a rapper who said a few things that I thought were really kind of important to highlight. First, uh, Aku talked about how as first, she's like, I'm a woman rapper. So that already kind of put her in a unique position across rap scene is quite male. But in addition to that, she, um, so she said, you know, she said something that a lot of my other interlocutors, especially the artists, talked about that they don't make music for um, for Ghanaians or for Africans. They make music for people who like music. And I think that's a really important thing when thinking about um, what Afropolitan projects are about. They're both specific because Aku's work is specific and also um, universal or generalizable or international. These are kind of some of the languages that they used. Um, so there's that. and. But one of the things that Aku like spent a lot of time in our interview talking about was about how she understood herself as a black person and the kind of trajectory that it took to understand herself as a black person and to assert how her black is different precisely because it's a post-colonial blackness. And I thought that was really important to kind of highlight 
um, in her own words. But what I also found really interesting with in my interview with Aku that I think is really relevant for the broader um, analysis is that um, while resisting, while uh, claiming a blackness, she also refused to claim a queer sexuality. And the reason for that was because as she put it, she didn't want to shoot herself in the foot while she was still um, building her reputation as a rapper. And what that really highlighted for me, which I expand on in um, in chapter five of the book on sexual politics, is how um, there's a specter of violence that continues to to haunt these Afropolitan projects and the kind of openness that this this cultural politics kind of speaks to. Uh, what I really found was that even for myself, there were spaces in which I was unwilling to explicitly talk about queerness. And that's because despite being in spaces that were open and welcoming and all of that sort of stuff, the broader cultural context was one in which silence was encouraged. And what's wonderful is that now, in, in the short time since I did this research and this book has come out, um, folks have really kind of broken that silence and queer people are more out and upfront within the Ghanaian context. And this is also true in Nigeria in much more um, bold and explicit ways than before. And so I think Aku's kind of silence around her queer sexuality foreshadows what I expand on um, in in the fifth chapter of the book on sexual politics more broadly in terms of this haunting that's happening and also in terms of the those moments of resistance that are so interesting to me to really think about how people are challenging the silence. Who is Cell? What did you glean from Cell's revelations? So Cell is uh, one of the artists that uh, whose work appears in the book. Sal Kofiga is his name. And um, he has a piece in the book that's an untitled image. Uh, it's a self-portrait that I really like because it's part of a broader series of self-portraits. I actually have a copy in my office. Um, but it's one of it's one of a series of self-portraits in which he's thinking about questions of Blackness and religion and post-colonial, the post-colonial nation. Um, and so his work makes an appearance in the book in kind of thinking about how we see ourselves. These are abstract self-portraits um, in case uh, folks are not, you know, in case folks want to kind of go look it up. Um, but his, and with Cell, I didn't actually do a formal interview with him. Part of what we, we had a lot of ethnographic different ethnographic conversations. And one of the things that Cell spent a lot of time talking about with me was uh, what it means to be a Black man walking around Accra. And here too, like with Cell's experiences, we do begin to see how um, these, actually, let me juxtapose Cell, my some of my conversations with Cell with another conversation that I write about in the book with um, uh, an interlocutor I call Hassan. Hassan shared a story about how he had been pulled over by the police in while in Houston. And in addition, and, and the question that the police asked him was, um, where did you get your car from or something like that? And Hassan, like usually at the time when I knew him, he drove pretty nice cars. Um, and so he took out, and the story he tells me, he told me that he took out his, um, his business card um, he's an engineer at a very fancy firm, and um, but also talked about how he was dressed. He was wearing jeans and a t-shirt, and so he believed that uh, showing his business card is part of what got him out of a ticket and what got him out of a potentially deadly situation. Um, and I juxtapose that against my conversation with Hassan, uh, with Cell, who talked about how uh, navigating the city of Accra, you. Uh, you are potentially exposed to police violence if you're not dressed 
in a certain way, if you do not exude a particular kind of class privilege. And this too is racialized. It's racialized and classed um, because Obronis or white people or other foreigners who are not dressed in these kind of classed ways are not necessarily um, accosted by the police in the same way. And so part of what uh, my conversation with Sal and many others actually highlight is the the global violence of the police, right? So that even as we kind of are in the United States thinking about um, talking about abolishing the police or defunding the police or what have you, the the reality of police violence exceeds the boundaries of this nation. And we see it happening in other places as well in racialized ways, in gendered ways, um, because in, in Ghana too, we, the police will stop people for not doing gender correctly. And so these conversations really kind of show us um, opportunities for transnational solidarity around some of these issues that we're dealing with. And I think that conversation with Cell um, begins to show wh where where those moments of solidarity might be as well. Can you tell us about Lisa? What may be learned from her insights and words? Yeah, um, so Lisa is someone that I interviewed in Houston. Um, she'd lived in Houston for over 20 years. She was a doctor. And um, there were a lot of things that she talked about, but I think one of the things that I want to highlight right now is um, how she talked about her African identity. Uh, she really described an expansive African identity in which she, um, she, while identifying herself as someone who was an Ikiapim, which is an Akan, Akan ethnic group, um, she also talked about how her experiences growing up in Ghana, um, in, in the Eastern region of Ghana, the kind of broad family that she had, the, uh, her experiences in boarding school, these are all part of the things that made her understand that she was an African. And when she met Africans from other parts of the continent, uh, she knew that she shared those experiences with them as well, even if they were unique in particular ways, they were also similar enough that she felt really felt a sense of herself as an African. And that conversation, um, kind of replicated in different contexts with different um, folks that I talked to. And what it highlighted for me was that there's something, there's an importance to being African for my interlocutors. That was something, it, it had meaning for them in particular ways, in the same way that they understood, well, in different ways, but in the way, th just as they understood themselves as Black, there was also something very specific to being an African that they they found important and it found important to articulate. And that thing was effective. And it was also uh, something that um, allowed them to, to create relationships with other people. Why did Nana and Kay return to Ghana? What do they contribute by way of their narrative? So I end the book with this conversation that I have between, um, I have with Nana and Kay. And with, with them, the, this was a, an unplanned conversation. Nana was so generous as to invite me to her home. Um, and we were having, we were having uh, dinner and I was learning more about them both. Um, but it was a very helpful conversation for me because we were just informally kind of reflecting on their different experiences. And for both of them, and for several other of my interlocutors who also returned to Ghana, they returned for reasons that sound a lot like why we think people migrate. They were looking for a better life. And they, they found, they felt that coming back to Ghana was a place where they would be able to accomplish that. And I think that's important because there were several of my interlocutors who also kind of shared narratives such as that, and I present some of those in the book. But 
what it does is that it challenges how we think about how scholars of immigration may think about immigration and return migration. So there's this idea that people move to the West because that's where opportunities are and that's where you can get a good life because um, especially in Africa, there's no good life to be had, right? This is kind of the narrative. But what my interlocutors offered, both those who lived in the US and those who lived in Ghana was a challenge to that idea. Um, opportunity was not something, you know, economic opportunity was not something that was exclusive to somewhere beyond the African continent. But they also called attention to other reasons why people move, like a desire to experience something new or, um, you know, some longing for something. And I, I kind of, I really heard that on both sides of the Atlantic. And so I think these experiences um, or these conversations kind of invite us to think very broadly about the narratives we tell about why people move around and also um, to think seriously about, um, you know, how we even imagine what opportunity or progress or what any of these things might look like. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, what are you working on now as your current and subsequent research? Yeah, um, I started to mention this, that one of the um, one of the things that I was interested in when I started, when I went to graduate school, was I was really interested in, in sports and gender. And I'm currently working on a book about gendered nationalism and women's football or soccer in the US and Ghana. I'm interested in what it means when women represent the nation through this um, heteromasculine site that is football. Now, football is um, a sport that on the African continent has largely been used as part of an anti-colonial project, as a nation building politic, and as well as just kind of the fun and the popular um, cultural elements of it. And in Ghana, women started playing football, um, kind of the national team was formed in 1991. Uh, this was around the same time that FIFA also decided to finally host a Women's World Cup. And the team has gone through peaks and slumps. And so what this project that I'm working on is interested in is the various ways that uh, the state, the football administration, the nation, and the players themselves have understood the, the Ghanaian women's national team as representing the nation. Um, I, I hope to understand the extent to which women can represent the heteromasculine nation, but also to um, identify if there are, similarly to kind of the theme that I have in this book, opportunities for resistance and for reshaping the nation and for rethinking nationalism more broadly. So that's what I'm working on right now. I wish you the best of luck. It sounds fascinating, beyond superb. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for these wonderful questions. I've enjoyed this conversation very much. So have I. This has been a real pleasure for me and I couldn't be more appreciative and couldn't be more grateful. To our listeners, I'm your host on the New Books in African Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. I've been in dialogue today with Dr. Anima Ajapong. Dr. Ajapong is Assistant Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Cincinnati. Dr. Ajapong is the author of the new book, Afropolitan Projects, Redefining Blackness, Sexualities, and Culture from Houston to Accra, published in Chapel Hill by University of North Carolina Press 2021. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you.